Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Shared Civic Values. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, September 18, 2016. Pray for the King, says Paul in this week's epistle from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and for all those in authority. Submit yourselves to the governing authorities, he tells the believers in Romans chapter 13. This is provocative instruction for a presidential election. When my wife and I were walking around the ruins of Rome this past summer, both sacred and secular, I kept wondering how the early believers related to the Roman state and society. Did they go to those gruesome games in the Colosseum, run for elected office, serve in Rome's military? In his history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, way back in 1776, Edward Gibbon argued that the success of the early Christians was based upon their intolerant zeal of Roman ways. That is, the new faith was utterly incompatible with and obstinately different from the old ways of the ancient empire. There are some early texts that support this oppositional paradigm like the one by a Roman lawyer and Christian named Manuncius Felix of the early 3rd century. He wrote a dialogue between a Christian named Octavius and a pagan critic called Cecilius. Whether the dialogue is actual history or just a literary device isn't clear. What is clear, though, is that in this telling, Roman believers lived on the cultural fringes. Since the Christian sect was new and novel and couldn't claim an ancient paradigm or pedigree, it was automatically suspect. Many of its adherents were unlettered and unlearned, or in Cecilius's snobbery, utter boors and yokels, ungraced by any manners or culture. In style and content, their scriptures were crude, they believed absurd doctrines like the resurrection of the body and providence. Rumors about their cannibalism, incest, and infanticide were well known. And so, Cecilius complains and condescends at length. I quote, They despise our temples as being no more than sepulchres. They spit after our gods. They sneer at our rites. And, fantastic though it is, our priests they pity. Pitiable themselves. They scorn the purple robes of public office, though they go about in rags themselves. <clears throat> you do not go to our shows. You take no part in our processions. You are not present at our public banquets. You shrink in horror from our sacred games from food ritually dedicated by our priests, from drink hallowed by libation poured upon our altars. Such is your dread of the very gods you deny. You do not bind your head with flowers. 
You do not otter your body with perfumes, ointments you reserve for funerals. But even to your tombs you deny garlands. You anemic, neurotic creatures, you indeed deserve to be pitied, but by our gods. The result is, you pitiable fools, that you have no enjoyment of life while you wait for the new life which you will never have. If you have not been privileged to understand the concerns of a citizen, you most surely have been denied discussion of the affairs of heaven. And then comes the clincher. The Christians, gripe Cecilius, and here I quote, do not understand their civic duty. In other words, they were outliers. Writing at the end of the second century, Tertullian imagines a huge chasm between faith and culture. He infamously asked, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Elsewhere, he indicates that Christians didn't or shouldn't serve in the military. And so for Tertullian, believers lived on the periphery. He writes, We Christians shrink from all burning desires for renown and position. There is nothing more foreign to us than affairs of the state. But just a few paragraphs before this black and white statement, Tertullian strikes a very different chord. He boasts that believers had permeated every level of Roman society. I quote, We are only of yesterday and have filled everything you have. Cities, apartment blocks, forts, towns, marketplaces, even the military camps, tribes, town councils, the palace, the senate, the forum. We have left you only the temples. Wait a minute. Were there believers in the Roman Senate by the late second century? Debating in the forum, the very center of civic life? Or would a conscientious believer back then have shunned such worldly places? Well, you can read Tertullian both ways. Writing in the middle of the third century, down in Alexandria, Egypt, Origen responds to the pagan critic Celsus, who had urged believers to help the king with all our might, and to labor with him in the maintenance of justice, to fight for him, and if he requires it, to fight under him, or lead an army along with him. Origen responded to Celsus by invoking the epistle for this week from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Believers do play their part in public affairs, he says, albeit on their own terms and in their own ways. He writes, We by our prayers vanquish all demons who stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace. We in this way are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs, when along with righteous prayers we join self-denying exercises and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not be led away by them. And none fight better for the king than we do. 
We do indeed fight under him, although he require it, but we fight on his behalf, forming a special army, an army of piety, by offering our prayers to God. In his recent book, Coming Out Christian, How the Followers of Jesus Made a Place in Caesar's Empire, 2015, Doug Bowen, who's a classicist historian and archaeologist at St. Louis University, rejects Edward Gibbons's characterization of Christians as zealous sectarians. His book offers a refreshingly nuanced interpretation. Bowen says that there were many different ways to be both Roman and Christian. He argues that the early believers lived hyphenated lives and juggled their identities in highly creative ways. In other words, they lived in a middle ground characterized by many shades of gray. For the most part, early believers were just ignored, even entirely invisible when judged by the paucity of their archaeological remains. New scholarship suggests that they weren't as persecuted as some standard histories suggest. In addition to confessing their faith, at least some believers served in the military, went to the games, enjoyed the festivals, attended the theaters, just like their neighbors. For them, the Roman state wasn't the horror of Babylon or the great dragon of John's revelation, but a fascinating place to live in an institution ordained by God. Bowen discerns a pattern not of hostility and withdrawal, not of some zero-sum game, but one of engagement and dialogue. In short, he says, believers did their best to fit in with what he calls shared civic values, which is just what we read in the epistles. Wives were to obey their husbands, slaves their masters. Believers were to honor the emperor and live at peace with all people. And yes, from 1 Timothy 2 for this week, pray for the king. Before too long, there came a remarkable historical paradox. The greatest persecutor of the church, the Roman state, became its biggest supporter, Constantine, and in addition, the center of its ecclesiastical power, the Roman papacy. But then, observes Bowen, came an ominous turn. By the late 4th century, this civic participation by Christians had eroded into violent cultural clashes, the burning of a synagogue, the destruction of a pagan temple, and government legislation that punished non-believers. Sadly, we've been living with the consequences ever since. For further reflection, consider the poet farmer Wendell Berry, who once observed that he was neither a conservative nor a liberal, but stuck in the middle and most uncomfortable. For books this week, we have a guest review. The name of the book is The Story of Monasticism, 
retrieving an ancient tradition for contemporary spirituality. The author is Greg Peters. Grand Rapids, Baker Books, 2015. This book is 278 pages. This is a guest book review by W. David Bushhart, co-author most recently of a book called Theology as Retrieval. The name of the book, The Story of Monasticism. Beginning in the late 1970s, many evangelical Christians began to adopt the language of spirituality to talk about the Christian life. This wasn't simply a change of terminology. It was reflective of many evangelical Christians beginning to look back more broadly for wisdom and guidance for life with God. They looked more broadly, both chronologically, looking back in history, and ecclesiastically, considering Christian traditions and denominations that they hadn't considered before. In Greg Peters' book, The Story of Monasticism, it's a recent example of this broader approach to Christian spirituality by evangelicals. The author, Greg Peters, is Associate Professor of Medieval and Spiritual Theology in the Honors Program of Biola University and a Benedictine Oblate. He's the most able and helpful guy. The introductory chapter provides a definition and orienting description of monasticism. Monastics are those who intentionally live alone or in community under a rule of life and vows that give shape to their daily routine and shared mission in life. This is accompanied by an account of religious calling in the Bible, from Adam and Abraham to Paul and Mary and Martha. Peters observes that a con contemplative aspect is a common feature of a religious callings in the Christian scriptures, and that the Bible teaches the good practices of living with others communally, taking vows to God, and praying at fixed times. Thus, these practices of monasticism have biblical precedent. In the body of the book, Peters takes readers on a chronologically comprehensive walk through the history of monasticism, from Anthony of Egypt to Benedict of Nursia, from Benedict to Bernard of Clairvaux, from Bernard to Martin Luther, and then from Luther to Thomas Merton in the 20th century, with three or four chapters devoted to each of these eras. Each of the 15 chapters ends with a brief exercise in resourcement, the French word. This kind of looking back to yesterday for wisdom is much of what resourcement is about, and Peters is a recognized proponent and practitioner. Thus, these sections at the end of each chapter offer his takeaway and challenge to readers. The, ta the challenge or invitation to listen to and learn from the voices and lives of monastics. Peters is not trying to coerce people to leave their jobs in computer programming or real estate and move to the desert. He himself is a married father and university professor. He does, however, think that computer programmers and real estate agents, indeed every follower of Christ, would do well to watch, listen, and learn from the contemplative and active principles and practices of monasticism. For example, in the resourcement for the chapter on Benedictine monasticism, Peters points to monastic principles and practices that help to cultivate humility, obedience, and hospitality. 
He then suggests how these principles and practices might inform the shape of church life. After all, the monastery was never meant to supplant the church, and the fact is that monastic virtues such as humility, obedience, and hospitality are open to all Christians, particularly those who choose to participate in a local church. Peters is a knowledgeable guide, having published a number of scholarly articles in another book related to Christian monastic traditions. The story of monasticism is well grounded in primary sources, that is, the writings of monasticism itself. Yet the non-academic reader need not fear, because Peter's primary intent is specifically to inform and educate people who were not already acquainted with the history, principles, or practices of Christian monasticism. He doesn't assume that readers know the story of monasticism. He tells it, and it's a story worth listening to. Once again, the author, Greg Peters, the title, The Story of Monasticism from 2015. For books this week, we go, for movies, excuse me, for movies this week, we go to sports, and I review a very fun movie called Fastball, 2016. This sports documentary wins the MVP for baseball nerdiness with its anecdotal and even scientific analysis of how hard it is to hit a major league fastball. And by fast, a pitch with electricity or ride, they mean the difference between a mere 90 mile an hour pitch, which reaches home plate in 456 milliseconds, and the high heater at the magical 100 miles an hour, which is upon you in 396 milliseconds, about the time it takes you to blink your eye. The 50 millisecond difference means the ladder pitch reaches you four and a half feet faster, making it almost impossible for the brain to process visual stimuli fast enough to hit the ball. As you would expect, the film interviews many of the great hitters and pitchers, along with a few pro scouts, sports columnists, and even a physicist. The first pitcher to have his ball clocked was Walter Johnson back in 1912 at 83.2 miles an hour. Then, when I was growing up, there was Bullet Bob Feller in 1946, who was clocked at 98.6. And the fastest fastball ever? Well, that would be the left-handed Cuban, Arobus Chapman, at 105.1 miles per hour. And that is unhittable. The name of the movie, Fastball, from 2016. <clears throat> And finally, for poetry this week, we have A Prayer to the Blessed Trinity by Daniel Berrigan. I'm locked into the sins of General Motors. My guts are in revolt at the culinary equivocations of General Foods. 
hang over me like an evil Shekinah, the missiles of General Electric. Now we shall go from the generals to the particulars. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, let me shake your right hands in the above-mentioned order. Unmoved motor, food for thought, electric one. I like you better than your earthly idols. You seem honest and clear-minded and reasonably resolved to make good on your promise. Please owe it to yourselves, not less than to us. Warn your people. Beware of adulterations. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 18, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.